welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast, where we talk to horticulture sector people and discuss horticulture issues. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week, and this week I'm joined by landscape architect Alexandra Steed. Hello, how are you? Hi, Rachel. It's so nice to be speaking with you today. It is so lovely to be speaking with you too. (laughs) How is 2024 treating you so far? Are you working on any exciting projects? Yeah, um, we have some really interesting projects, actually, which I'm loving. Most of our work is in London and the surrounding areas. So, um, well, we have, I I think we have about five projects on the go right now. One of them is in South Essex, and we've been working on this project uh, since 2019. It's called South Essex Estuary Park, and it was actually originally... um, commissioned as a green and blue infrastructure strategy for all of South Essex. So that includes six local authorities plus Essex County Council and covers 70,000 hectares. Wow. So um, that was a very exciting project. And we're continuing on with pieces of that. So we're looking currently at, um, we're calling it phase one, and that's just developing a demonstration project so that people can get a sense of what um, sort of the greater Sea Park project is all about and how um, how improving the landscape infrastructure in the region will really bring about many benefits. So it's this initial piece is just looking at some of the waterfront that goes along um, Thurrock and Basildon and Castle Point towards South End on Sea and improving that path network, improving the planting, improving signage and wayfinding and just, um, you know, getting people into nature and towards the waterfront where so many people in that community currently don't have that kind of access. So um, so that's a really exciting project and one that um, that we're really passionate about. And um, we also have a nice project in Canterbury. That is a master plan project that we started uh, last year. And it is to expand Canterbury by about 25%. So it's quite a large, yeah, (laughs) it's quite a large new master plan. Um, But again, it's really looking at how we can improve the landscape while we're bringing about new development so that you know the two can um, happen hand in hand development doesn't necessarily have to mean that a landscape is harmed in any way or or you know um, brings about negative consequences in fact if we plan in a landscape-led sort of way, then we can actually bring benefits to that landscape. So that's the way that project is being approached and the client is is really on board and fully supportive of that kind of approach, which is super exciting. It makes all the difference. Oh, it makes all the difference, yeah. And maybe I'll just mention a final one. It's Sky TV. So there we've been working, um, gosh, since 2015. It was one of my... One of the first projects that I won um, back when I started my practice. Yeah. (laughs) And so we've been working with Sky TV ever since. um, And we've just completed the the latest phase of design, which is a new boulevard and um, and entry plaza and also a building called um, Sky Innovation Center, where we've done the landscape all around that. And again, that client... 
I think came to us because of the kind of approach we have to landscape and you know we look at very regenerative approaches we look at how we can improve the environment mm-hmm. and connect people to nature in really kind of fresh and and vital ways even even within a campus and even within a work environment like that it's it's just so important so anyway we've just completed that so that's exciting so is that com- the completion of your work on that project since 2015 or are you going to do more things in that area um I think that will be it. We've, I think we've done all the landscape kind of possible at this moment, <laughs> unless, unless they expand the campus a little bit further. Yeah. But, you know, our original work in 2015 to 2017 was building out about five hectares of kind of the central mm-hmm. piece of the landscape. And then this, these latter phases have been extending it to the entry and, uh, yeah. So I think we've covered all the ground now possible. <laughs> They just need to start building more spaces for it then. Exactly, yeah. I know a huge passion of yours is getting people closer to nature and and talking about kind of landscape-led projects, I think leads us quite nicely into talking about biodiversity net gain. Hmm. Obviously, that came into effect on the 12th of February um, and potentially too early to tell from experience you know, what kind of effect it's going to have on the whole of the UK. But do you believe it will have its intended effect? Well, it's um, it's a big question, actually. And there's there's so much to be observed, I think, in the coming years about how successful it is. I mean, maybe just to give a, a little bit of background, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the audience knows about biodiversity net gain, but some may not. So I thought I'd just kind of give it a really quick description of what that is about and it's it's really about improving the biodiversity and the natural environment um, within a development area and leaving it in a better state than it was before the development happened um, so we're looking on sites to increase the biodiversity um, effectiveness by about 10 percent or a minimum of 10 percent and So developers can um, achieve that on site or sometimes if it can't be achieved on site to bring about this 10% increase in biodiversity that it can also um, be then presented off site or delivered off site. So that's something to keep in mind too. It's not always within the plot boundary that these biodiversity net gains will be delivered. Um, So really the hope is that BNG will help to reverse biodiversity decline. And it also adds an economic incentive to not harm nature. So to develop in less significant nature areas, which I think is really important and a really valuable concept um, to be working towards. But, you know, going back to your question, I think, um, I think there may be some issues with how biodiversity net gain is implemented, approached, and delivered, and actually governed and enforced. I think that will be a large um, challenge in the future. So, I mean, so maybe I'll just go through some of those concerns one by one, if if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've already mentioned quite a few that I know are big concerns for our audiences. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. 
Yeah. Well, I would say my biggest concern is that biodiversity net gain is being considered on a plot by plot basis. So rather than looking at a landscape in its kind of regional capacity um, or, you know, at a watershed level where all of its natural processes and systems are, are taken into account, instead we're dividing it up and trying to apply improvements on a plot by plot and piecemeal basis. And nature just doesn't work that way. You know, I think we, we've learned um, that nature is all about systems and it's all about connectivity and interconnectedness so yet here we are trying to divide it into little bits and pieces and i think so right from the start um that brings about a lot of problems um and you know i'd see i'd say that one of the things that i'm seeing because a lot of local authorities and developers have already started to apply biodiversity net gain to their project. So we've been working with biodiversity net gain for a while. So, you know, we can start to see how that might pan out. And okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's also been some research around some of these initial um, projects, integrating biodiversity net gain. And what we're seeing is that there's in aggregate, a considerable loss of green space. Uh, on a on a development plot. So for example, um, a lot of housing development might be happening on, um, for, for example, poor quality farmland. And so that is entirely green at the moment. And so once you've developed it, um, you might have sort of intense areas of ecological improvements but sort of in total, there's less area. So, so that's one of the things that's, that's being noticed is that there's sort of a significant loss of green space, even though biodiversity net gain might be improved. Um, there's also a tendency to be going for um, biodiversity improvements that kind of tick all the boxes in the metric and score well um, such as, you know, for example, species-rich grasslands and things that are easy to deliver, uh, types of landscapes that are easy to deliver, but it can lead then to sort of a homogenization of the mm-hmm. type of habitats that are being created. So it might not be bringing about the kind of diversity that's really required. You know, if all developers go for creating species-rich grasslands, yeah. for instance... Yeah. And, and not um, looking at some of the more difficult habitats to create. So, so yeah, I'd say like, you know, this homogenization, intensification, um, types of habitats that are easy to deliver. These are the things that are, are coming about, I'd say, in early days. And it will be interesting to see now that it's really come into force um, and we'll be seeing it at a much larger scale, how this will, how this will really affect the UK. I I guess another thing that's happening is that a lot of the improvements are happening within the plot boundary and um, there's not so much going to improvements off-site. So most of the improvements are being delivered on-site and so perhaps we're not getting the benefits of enriching the larger landscape and improving biodiversity, for example, in um, local nature recovery networks, 
which I think was one of the hopes was that there would be more um, funding and um, improvements to the wider area. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I know there was also concern, though, that offsetting would mean that, you know, those local communities who are having those developments aren't benefiting from more green spaces. But mm-hmm. I guess the flip of the coin is, is what you've just said. That's right. Yeah. So while there might be kind of urban intensification within the development plots in the wider um, nature networks, there's not that kind of improvement. And then also, I'd say um, I mentioned this at the start, the governance issue is is a major one, because at the moment there hasn't been any establishment or um, sort of way of enforcing the delivery or ensuring ongoing management and stewardship of a site. So, you know, a lot of local authorities, I'd say most, don't have any in-house ecological expertise mm. and biodiversity expertise. And so um, once these developments are delivered, there's not really anybody that will be around to enforce their management and stewardship over time. And of course, that's essential. That, you know, that's something that we can't ignore. And yet at this point, there's just no way of, of there's no funding going towards that. Which is interesting because one of the regulations with biodiversity net gain, you know, they have to be maintaining these spaces and keeping up that biodiversity for 30 years, right? Yes, that that's meant to be the way it is. And yet, as I said, there's not any mechanism right now for enforcement of that. So um, especially, especially um, within right, the on-site yeah. um, developments. So the off-site, so for example, if, um, if the benefits are placed off-site in some sort of local nature network, then there is a governance structure that's kind of um, integrated within that local nature network. But within these more urban developments that have um, the biodiversity net gain all achieved within that particular development site, there is no mechanism for enforcement right now. And really, it's up to the local authorities to do that. But then, as I said, because they don't have the staffing and they don't have the funding to really be put into that, it will most likely fall down. It will fall short of what's required. very very disastrous to have all these little niche pockets of green spaces that just are left that's right yeah yeah absolutely so talking about kind of instead of having these pockets of green spaces i guess we're we're talking about green corridors here making sure that we're connected making sure there's you know a variety of different Mm. habitats what's the solution then because i i I worry that ultimately developers are going to do what ticks the boxes and what is the cheapest or the easiest. I could be um, very biased there, but that's kind of a fear, isn't it? Yes, I think that's a really great question. And it's something that I'm very passionate about, actually. So, um, you know, in our approach, we're always trying to advocate for strategic landscape strategies so that when development does come up, there um, there is a way to decide and to measure if that development is in an appropriate area. You know, what will the harmful effects be? 
would it be placed better elsewhere? You know, so I think what we are lacking in the UK are strategic landscape plans. So we really need to be looking at landscape at regional level or even watershed level, as I mentioned earlier, so that we're taking into account um, the processes and the context of a particular area rather than trying to divide nature up into these little pieces because we'll never come up with the kind of overall um, quality of improvement that we're after by doing so. We need to consider it in totality as a whole and in the way that nature works, you know, in interconnection and interdependence, you know, one habitat with another and one, you know, the way hydrology works and the way soils work and the way air quality comes into being. It's all because of this interconnectedness. So that's what I think is missing is having sort of a complete picture and understanding the context before we try um, to bring about development. You know, I, I always say that we need to be um, placing development within a context rather than putting development on a particular environment. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So I think until we have that, until we have these more strategic understandings of um, how a whole landscape comes together, we won't be able to achieve the kind of biodiversity net gain and overall environmental health that we're really after and that's required. One potential other positive, which again, time will probably tell with, um, is access to nature and whether you know, it improves people's connectivity to nature. And I know it's something you're really passionate about. Um, and it's actually something you kind of delve into in your new book, Portrait to Landscape, a landscape strategy to reframe our future. Um, do you hope kind of biodiversity net gain will do this? Mm, well, I think biodiversity net gain will improve things. I, I don't mean to sound too negative. Probably what I've said up until now is mostly <laughs> about my concerns with biodiversity net gain. I do think it's a positive thing and I do think it's a step in the right direction, definitely. But I also think there are limitations with the way it's being delivered and um, likely managed in the future. So, so yes, I do think it will be a positive, but I think we do need to be doing much more and we do need to be thinking about landscape and habitats and ecosystems at a much um, grander scale and in totality. So, so yes, I think um, biodiversity net gain will not only improve um, the quality and, and the vitality of the natural world, but it will also improve people's connection to nature within a particular place so you know obviously there are no disadvantages to that that is only pure good I would say <laughs> um, but but yeah I think there will be limitations and we kind of need to go beyond um, thinking of biodiversity as a metric you know I think that that's one of the the main problems is that we're still thinking of it in terms of something that is valuable to us just kind of in monetary or um, economic terms, you know? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, and I think your concerns are completely valid because we want to go about this the right way, don't we? We don't want to just do it for the sake of it and, and end up with spaces that aren't 
performing or, or, you know, benefiting in the ways that they were intended to. Mm -hmm. In your book, you also uh, speak about um, things policymakers as well as, you know, activists and individuals can do. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the government could be doing more? Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do think the government could be doing more. I, I, I do also believe that you know, our relationship with nature is something that happens at a very individual level, of course. Mm. Um, but, but the government could definitely be supporting that. And, you know, there's loads of measures that could be taken to improve, um, to prove our relationship with the natural world, but also just to bring about health and well-being and, um, in order to start restoring nature and recovering and and rehabilitating sort of all the damage and destruction that we've done to the natural world. So um, I guess some of the things, some of the things that I think the government could be doing are looking at enforcing taxation of large landowners and also of, of corporations that are so um, so hugely benefiting from natural resources and the exploitation of the natural world, mm. bringing about so much devastation, and yet they are not having to pay for any of the loss and damages of that. You know, they're even oftentimes still being subsidized to carry on with those activities, such as oil and gas, for instance. So a lot of our taxpayer money, a lot of government subsidies are still going into these activities that can be incredibly damaging to the natural world. And so I would love to see the government, um, you know, moving those subsidies and that taxpayer money and moving it into activities that will reverse climate change and that will um, promote renewable energy uh, that will restore nature, that will support regenerative agricultural practices, for instance. That is a huge one, sort of how how we um, deal with the land in our food production. That is huge. About In the UK, about 70% of our land is farmland. And so how we treat that land will make an incredible impact. So um, those are just some examples. You know, there's, there's so many other things that could be done, you know, around, um, and, well, and this is outside of the UK uh, as well, looking at global things that governments could be doing, but around empowering indigenous peoples that sort of have this inherent guardianship of nature, you know, right in their DNA. Mm. And they've, they're still managing about 80% of the planet's biodiversity, um, even though they manage so little of the Earth's land. And yet, yet they have that kind of effect, that kind of incredible effect on biodiversity. And also, you know, increasing women's rights so that women around the world can own and manage land. You know, so many women don't even have rights to um, property ownership or accessing a bank account or bank loans, and yet they're responsible for feeding their families. So, you know, there's just so many things. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think listeners will be cheering and clapping in agreement to, to that. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and these are global things, but I guess um, coming back to the UK, 
and what I was saying earlier about landscape-led developments, I think this is something that should really be prioritized with the government. And one of the things that I was hoping to help promote um, through my book that you mentioned earlier, that if we if we create sort of regional landscape strategies and if we authentically consider um, landscape-led developments, then we will bring about the kind of change necessary and it gives us the opportunity to restore landscape at the kind of scale required because we do know and and scientists around the world agree that we need to make change now you know within this decade because we're already breaching tipping points to do with climate change to do with biodiversity decline to do with plastics pollutions and and all of these things, all of these ways that civilization has affected the planet, we're now seeing the planet is saturated. And so with our, with our contamination and our pollution and our devastation and exploitation. And so we need to act quickly to turn these things around. So we need to act at a grand scale. And that's why I think it's so important that we look at, at landscapes in in wide and broad and deep ways to bring about that kind of change. Amazing. I feel like you need a mic drop. (laughs) That is (laughs) so inspiring to hear. And so I think a lot of people will be, like I said, clapping and cheering along hearing you, hearing you say that. Um, And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, it's really inspiring to hear kind of some of the work you're doing um, around Mm -hmm. that. And that sometimes you can feel quite small, can't you? that there's not much you can do as an individual or as a company. So it's it's really inspiring to hear the work that you're getting up to. Mm. Oh, thanks, Rachel. Well, you know, one of the main reasons I wrote my book is so that everybody could feel that they could be empowered and could make a difference as an individual. You know, each one of us has the power to use our voice as citizens, you know, to get involved in, involved in rallies and marches, to write letters to our local MPs, to vote for the politicians that care about the environment and about the future of the living world. Um, and we also have such, such agency in choosing about how we ourselves interact with the natural world. You know, the kind of food that we choose to eat has an incredible impact. Are we choosing foods that are grown on sustainable farms? Or are we choosing foods that are grown, um, you know, that are bioengineered and that have been exposed to loads of pesticides and fertilizers and that are affecting the water system and that sort of thing. So, you know, each of these decisions that we make about our relationship with the natural world, how we choose to travel, for instance, makes a big difference. Are we driving everywhere when we could be walking or cycling? Or um, are we choosing vacations maybe that are using a lot of of fuel um, to to, to get to our destination? You know, all of these things make such a difference. And so I wanted people to feel empowered and to know that there is hope and that when each of us act, that we could make a huge difference. And it could be achieved quite quickly if we were all intentional intentional about the choices that we were making daily. So so 
there is hope, and um, those things can seem quite dire at times, and the state of the world can seem hopeless. There is hope, and and that is where creative minds can come in, and we can we can think creatively, and we can collaborate with nature to bring about the restoration required. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of phrasing it. I mean, it, it, it does feel quite dire, like you said, but actually landscape and landscape professionals hold such a big key um, to this crisis, you know, climate change crisis, biodiversity crisis. You know, we, we, have a, we hold a lot of the solution. So there is actually quite a lot of opportunity mm. um, when you look at it positively. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so much that can be done. And I, I suppose that was another thing I wanted um, the world to know through this book. It wasn't just meant to be for people involved in landscape industries. It was meant for everyone and for everyone mm. to become more aware of the power held within landscapes. And that this is the place where, you know, humans meet the rest of nature. It's all revealed in the landscape. And so this is why it's so important about how we deal with our landscapes because it, it expresses everything that we as humans believe about nature and our relationship to nature. So, um, so it's not just important for those of us working in the landscape industries, it's important for everybody to understand this and to understand the power held there and the power for rehabilitation within our landscapes. Absolutely, once again, very well said. <laughs> That has been so interesting. Um, and we're on to our, my last question, which is one that we ask every guest. Um, and that is, what plant would you take to a desert island? Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know, I've had the privilege of working in the Middle East on a number of projects Ooh. over the years. And there was, there's one plant um, called the Moringa tree that I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take that one to a desert island with me. <laughs> so I discovered that one a, a few years ago. It's an incredible tree. And um, not only is it beautifully fragrant and just beautiful to look at because it's flowering, but you can also eat the greens off of it. And they're incredibly Ooh. nutritious. Um, you can make oil from the seeds and you can do that just with your hands. So you wouldn't need any sort of special equipment with you or anything. Um, and it also is incredibly healing. The, the oils within it are incredibly healing as well. So, and fragrant. Um, so anyway, I would take that, that Moringa tree. I think it's wonderful. Amazing. Is it bad <laughs> that I'm thinking of those oils would make a great hair, hair mask? Oh, I think yeah. they do. Yeah. It's used for all sorts of things and as <laughs> healing balms and, you know, it's good for the immune system. There's so many wonderful qualities about it. So, and it barely needs any water. Oh. So that's why I would take it to a desert island. You're ticking every box there. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been really interesting to hear your insights and your passion has just shone through. So it is always fantastic speaking to somebody who's passionate about what they do. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could talk for hours about this. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back anytime. You're welcome. I'm Rachel Forsyth, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again to Alexandra and goodbye for now. <laughs>